This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, Chris, and Pat. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Josh Chin. Josh is the China Deputy Bureau Chief for the Wall Street Journal and is the co-author of the book Surveillance State. China's quest to launch a new era of social control. During our conversation, Josh talks about China's use of surveillance technology in Xinjiang, how it is using that technology to monitor and send Uyghurs to modern gulags, places the Chinese government calls re-education camps, and how the Chinese are exporting this technology around the world. Josh also talks about being kicked out of China in 2020, how China could unleash this technology on dissidents in the future, and how he would respond to those who are ambivalent to government surveillance because, quote, they have nothing to hide. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Josh Chin. Josh, it is a real honor and privilege to be able to talk to you. I know you are in the middle of a uh, grueling book tour at the moment. Um, it's, It's really an honor to be able to do this. Welcome to the show, man. It's great to meet you. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, it's It's a pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Um, I always like to start these conversations just with kind of getting the basic background of, you know, guests' interests and their expertise. What is your or what has been your just general life interest in in China and its surveillance state in general? What is the background of what got you interested in the first place? Yeah, well, um, you know, I've been I've been interested in China uh, most of my adult life. Probably actually started in childhood. I'm uh, I'm half Chinese. Uh, started going to China. My first trip to China was uh, in 1991 when I was just like 14 years old, and uh, I just got kind of hooked on the place. And partly it was because it was not at all what I expected it to be. Um, you know, I'd sort of grown up with this idea of China as, as like being like San Francisco, right? Like that's my my grandfather's from from Northern California, and he would take me on on trips to Chinatown. And I thought, you know, for what, when I was a kid, I actually thought. San Francisco was China for a while. Um, and, uh, you know, and, um, and so, you know, my first trip there, um, I was going in with these kind of visions of, you know, San Francisco and I like lots of, you know, activity signs, you know, signs in Chinese, you know, restaurants, lots of noise and activity. And we got there and it was this just gray, you know, kind of dull communist, state right everyone was wearing you know one of two shades of clothing you know just thousands and thousands of bicycles and donkey carts and you know no, not a restaurant not a freestanding restaurant to be seen anywhere and uh and i think just that 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 sort of contrast that conflict between my expectations of china and and what actually i saw when i went there really kind of piqued my 
interest, totally, you know, completely apart from sort of, you know, root seeking or, or anything family related, right? It was just, just the, the strangeness of it. And, um, and so, you know, over time I, I, you know, went to college, I studied Mandarin, uh, found a way back to China after I graduated from college doing journalism and then, um, eventually caught on with the wall street journal and, and I was working for them, um, in, you know, 2016 and 2017 when, uh, you know, I, you started to notice this really fascinating shift um, really, and really surprising shift in China, which is that, you know, for decades and for, you know, my entire experience, the duration of my entire experience in China, the Communist Party had been sort of trying to remove itself from the personal lives of, of Chinese citizens. You know, they'd sort of, you know, after the Cultural Revolution, you know, the, 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 the party sort of was mostly interested in kind of delivering economic growth and maintaining political control, but not, but kind of otherwise getting out of the way. Right, just letting people mostly live their lives, and you know, and, and a few years after the you know current Chinese leader Xi Jinping came to power in 2012, that that reversed, and the party started having many more opinions about what you know about how people live their lives, how society should be run, and they were really inserting themselves in, into into people's lives in in kind of unexpected ways or. Um, you know, so in some really intrusive ways, you know, you had kind of these like neighborhood uh, committee members who were sort of going around door to door and sort of snooping into people's affairs more. And then, uh, you know, we noticed in 2017, um, my, my co-author, Lisa, who's a tech reporter for The Wall Street Journal, uh, she noticed a bunch of money going into these startups in China that were doing AI and they were doing this um, one specific area of AI uh, known as computer vision, right? Yeah. Which is teaching machines how to recognize objects. And, uh, and it was a relatively new field, at least to us. And, and, and we, so we, you know, she called me up. She's like, Oh, I'm going to go visit this company in, in Beijing. Do you want to come along? It sounds like they're kind of involved in surveillance, which I know is something you're, interested in and uh and we went there and it was just this you know at the time crazy scene you know just these you know they had these cameras set up on the you know uh an intersection outside their office uh and they were and the their systems were labeling the video footage in real time you know so like a car would go by and it would label that car as like a you know gray uh bmw um, and guess at the model year or the, or like a person would walk, ride by on a bicycle and be like bicycle rider wearing a red shirt, that sort of thing. Right. And it was just kind of, and the, and the aim of that, all of that was so that police could search video footage really quickly. And, uh, you know, now, it, I mean, now that sort of technology is, 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 is spread pretty widely, but at the time it was, it was novel and really kind of sci-fi and we, um, and you know, we were, we were pretty blown away by it. And then it turned out it was a real business. They were selling these systems to police departments all over China. And we just felt like that's, you know, this is, this is kind of a big development. Um, even in a country like China, where you're used to the government snooping on people, this was like a whole new level. And so that's how we, we got into it. Yeah. And when you started to notice this activity, you know, obviously roughly five years has elapsed between then and now, but did you anticipate or did you have just kind of a spidey sense that this was heading in a specific kind of direction in terms of the quantity of surveillance and the, and the level of detail that it has really become? 
You know, honestly, at the, at the time, that first story, we just kind of, it was kind of like a gee whiz story. You know, it was like, and, and China really specializes in producing a lot of those, right? There's just, it's just one of the, it's just this massive country with, with, with a lot of money and a really powerful government and, and, um, and, you know, just all kinds of crazy stuff going on, huge amounts of economic growth. So every once in a while you would run across a story and just be like, wow, that's interesting. I never thought that would happen. So that's kind of where it started. But, you know, the more we looked into it, yeah, we realized actually this is not just, this isn't just like a tech startup story, right? That this is like, this is part of a, a big um, shift in the way that communist party wants to rule China. Uh, and that they, they had sort of written these technologies into a, a whole new reboot of, of their sort of version of authoritarianism. And, you know, the moment I think we, this really hit home was uh, when, when I went with a colleague uh, in late 2017 out to Xinjiang, yeah. which is this, you know, this region way out in, in, in northwestern China, remote region. Uh, some of your listeners probably have heard of it. Um, it's, you know, it's big, twice the size of Texas, um, has a lot of natural resources, uh, and it's always been a kind of, the kind of place that, or has always been a place that, that Chinese leaders for centuries have, have wanted to control and tried to control but struggled to because the people there um, are mostly Turkic Muslims, have very little in common with, with Chinese people culturally or linguistically or religiously. And, uh, and so, you know, there'd been a lot of conflict, some, some violence, and the Communist Party was, was using these technologies. We heard that the Communist Party was using these technologies out there, and we weren't quite sure why. Uh, and so a, a, my co a colleague and I, we rented a car, we drove in, and it was, you know, like driving into some sort of dystopian counterinsurgent counterinsurgency operation where they had just this, you know, the whole region was blanketed in every form of technology that we'd found earlier, right? So you had facial recognition, you had iris recognition, you had, you know, microphones record, recording voices, security gates everywhere, um, you know, and, and it was all targeting targeting Uyghurs mostly, the the, the sort of main ethnic group out there. And it was this, you know, and what they were doing with the technology was just so shocking when we, when we finally talked to people, right. When we found out that essentially they were using surveillance technology to collect data on every Uyghur in, in the region, all 12 million people. And they were basically collecting all that data on a centralized platform, which is the sort of platform that's, that's kind of, that was developed basically for, um, joint military operations in the war on terror, uh, you know, to sort of collect intelligence on, on insurgents and terrorists. And the way it was being used in Xinjiang was to, to track and categorize individual people uh, according to the, the potential threat uh, that they might pose to, to Communist Party rule in the future. Um, and then, you know, those people who were deemed to be threatening or quote unquote unsafe uh, we're, we're being sent to this this new, newly built uh, gulag of of internment camps, um, and it was just this really, you know, um, I think when it dawned on us what was going on there, it was just so. I mean, it was just it was dark in a way that I'd never really contemplated um, in China, you know, in my in my whole career in China, and so we just felt like, you know, this is this is definitely something new, uh, and that's when we I think you know the seeds of the book were sown with with that trip. Yeah. And I know you, you opened the book with uh, an account of the situation of the Uyghurs 
and go into some detail as to what what is happening to the people there and what one of you know someone who read that section it people just seem to disappear i mean there is something reminiscent to me just of what was going on with the gestapo and with the soviet union totalitarianism you know for people who are completely unfamiliar with the situation of what is going on you just mentioned the millions of, of uyghurs that that live there you know talk about what it's like to be living under that rule with that type of technology what what is that lived experience like for the people in that situation right yeah so i mean this is a um you know, particularly at that time uh, when it was it was really ramping up and at its most intense, you know, if you were a, a, a Uyghur sort of going about your daily life in, in Xinjiang in a city like Urumqi, like the capital, for example, you know, um, the minute you step out your door, uh, you're sort of basically being tracked all of the time, right? And so anywhere you want to go uh, that's public, whether it's a bank or a bazaar, a market or, you know, a hotel, anything like that, you have to pass through a a security checkpoint where you're scanning your ID card and your face and they're matching your face to your ID card. And that, you know, that, that, that provides a record of everywhere you go in public. If you've done anything wrong, um, you know, we, we met a guy, for example, who had forgotten to pay his phone bill for three months or neglected to pay his phone bill for three months. Um, who was on a, a some sort of list as a result, um, you know, so, you know, if you've done something wrong like him, you, if you scan your ID card at a, at a security gate, it will go off an alarm will go off. Right. And, and the cops there will sort of examine you and they might not let you pass. Um, so in that, in that guy's, in, uh, for that guy's, um, that guy's example, he was basically a prison in, prisoner in his own neighborhood because he couldn't, he couldn't go out uh, through any of the security gates. Um, you know, if you want to get gasoline, uh, you have to scan your face. Uh, you have to make all your passengers get out of the car, scan your face, go through a security gate, go to the pumps, scan your ID card um, to get the gasoline. And, and a record of how much gasoline you're buying will be attached to your sort of digital dossier. Uh, if you're walking down the street at, at sort of any moment, uh, a police officer can wave you over, demand your smartphone, stick it into a smartphone scanner and look through everything on your phone you know, and if you have, um, you know, a, a digital Quran, or you have the photo of a Turkish movie star, or you have a encrypted chat app like WhatsApp or something like that on your phone that's the, the, the Communist Party considers considers digital contraband, that's a black mark on your record, right? And you could you could be hauled off. Um, uh, and you know, it, it's, and that's you know, it's essentially. That is, you know, daily existence. Um, and then there are also regular visits in, in your residential compound from local officials who come to check uh, that there are um, the right number of people in that apartment. So there's every apartment has a QR code uh, at the entrance that the police officers and, and local officials can scan. And it will say who lives in that apartment, how many people um, and if anyone who's anyone is found in that apartment who doesn't live there, they can be interrogated, um, and, and rooms are often searched for for Qurans and that sort of thing. So it's essentially just completely suffocating, constant surveillance and categorization all of the time. And the, and the consequence for making a misstep or for being related to someone or friends with someone who makes a misstep could be uh, being dragged off to to an internment camp. 
you use the word gulag earlier and that's what this reminds me of in in the little research i've done about the situation over there what what are the you know quote unquote violations that would trigger a disappearance being sent to a concentration camp what in your reporting on this what do we know about the consequences or the the actions that an individual would you know could take or would take that would lead them to actually being physically removed against their will to one of these gulags right yeah so you know one of the we, we don't know the exact formula um yeah. you know that's that that's difficult to say um and, and and it seems to kind of differ from place to place some places had a point system other places seem to be more more arbitrary and kind of at the whim of local police but you know one thing we did get um from from a uyghur uh who who escaped xinjiang was a uh population data collection form uh which was handed out in the early days of the of this campaign before they'd sort of digitized everything but it was a paper form that every uyghur was supposed to fill out and it had questions that were sort of very revealing right and then you know i mean obviously the top were sort of basic you know name id birthday that kind of thing but then as you went down the form there were questions about re religious activity right so are you religious um what faith are you uh, and then the assumption obviously is that you're muslim so then because the next questions are how how many times a day do you pray you know one one through five um, where do you pray in a mosque at home? How often do you go to a mosque? Did you have a religious teacher? Who is your religious teacher? And then lower down questions about, you know, have you traveled abroad? Do you have a passport? Do you know people abroad? Um, you know, questions about your relatives um, and, uh, you know, age. Um, age was an important factor. They, they, you know, if you were a young man in particular, you would fall under, uh, you know, uh, uh, more scrutiny than others. Um, you know, and so those, so those are factors. If you were, if you were particularly religious, if you were, if you were caught going to a mosque, you know, a little too often. Um, and if you, you know, if you had contacts abroad, you, and you, or especially if you had traveled to a country, a Muslim majority country, uh, that could get you in trouble. Um, yeah, and then things just like having a having a you know there was a certain list of Turkish uh, celebrities that were considered kind of nat Turkish nationalist figures, right? That if you had if you you know had a photo of them or one of their songs or something on your phone, that that would be an you know an indication that you were you were a problematic type of person. Um, but yeah, but again, it was also guilt by association, right? So a lot of people who ended up in the camps. They ended up there just because they they purely because they had relatives abroad uh, who who were criticizing the government or because um, someone they they knew had also gone to a camp um, and and it was just pure pure guilt by association. As I hear that, and you tell me if you think this is incorrect, but it, it seems to me that there is a high level of arbitrariness to this that you just don't really know you're seeing neighbors disappear. And if you're in that neighborhood and you know that this is happening, you don't necessarily know why or when you might also be in that same boat. Is that fair? Yeah, no, I think that's totally, I think that's totally fair. And, and, and it's probably intentional, right? I mean, the, yeah. um, uh, you know, these, the sort of systems, you know, previous systems, you know, in totalitarian countries, we know have kind of been designed that way, right? The, the idea is that you'd never know, what it is that can get you taken away. You just know that, uh, it, you know, you need to be on your best behavior all of the time. And, um, you know, one, 
one uh one of the one of the people in the characters in the book uh a Uyghur poet by the name of Tahir Hamut who um yep. who who was like kind of the main the 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 main uh Uyghur we we wrote about you know he you know he just described sort of going around and you know at a certain point, he basically stopped going out because all anyone was talking about was who had been taken away and, the, you know, the speculation about why and nobody really knew, you know. And at one point, one of his closest friends um, who had actually been in the U.S. had sort of had, had already escaped Xinjiang but had come back because he was worried that if he didn't go back, his some friends of his might get in trouble. Um, he just suddenly disappeared one day and was taken away. And and And... And to this day, I don't think Tahir knows why, um, and and I think that's the case for most for most people. Yeah, what do we know for the Uyghurs specifically who do get taken away and and go to one of these gulags? What do we know about the circumstances in those, for lack of a better phrase? And you tell me if you think this is in you know, an inappropriate way to frame this, a concentration camp. They're, they seem to be relatively close. What what's what are the circumstances like inside these these camps? Yeah, so the camps, um, you know, uh, well, first of all, to, to sort of address the, the terminology issue, this was actually one thing that we really wrestled with early on in the reporting was whether to uh, translate them as concentration camps. Because in Chinese, yeah. they actually, some of the Chinese phrasing is literally, if you translate it literally, it is concentration camp. Um, you know, early on, we were like, we, we didn't really know very much about what was happening in them. We were sort of hesitant to describe them that way because it just obviously has this, uh, association with with Nazi Germany, um, and really we don't. There weren't mass death mass deaths happening in these camps. So they weren't. The intention was not to to uh, commit um, genocide in that sense. Um, but they were sort of. There's sort of a 21st century uh, um, reboot of, of of concentration camps, right? And and uh, with a, with a sort of Leninist twist, right? In the sense that. The the aim essentially was to um, to to reengineer uh, the thinking of Uyghurs, right? Their identities, um, their sort of and their 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 ideology, uh, which is a kind of very Leninist approach, right? You know, this this idea of brainwashing. Yeah. And so, what we, what we do know from from people who who came out who were released later uh, is that um, you know it was. People were basically jammed into you know really tight quarters uh, and sort of made to uh, you know study Mandarin because a lot of Uyghurs don't study Mandarin. They were also made to renounce Islam, pay uh, you know pledge allegiance to to the Chinese leader Xi Jinping, and then you know just absorb hour after hour of you know patriotic movies and and you know articles and they were made to sing patriotic songs and. And people who who didn't comply, who didn't um, weren't seen as making su- sufficient progress, were were often tortured. Um, and there were there were there have been many uh, accounts since then of 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 rape for for women, um, and a lot of you know the just extremely poor conditions. So people who Uyghurs who did go in, there were there were several deaths, and they were usually of Uyghurs who went in with either medical conditions that were basically neglected. Um, and, and very, very rarely, maybe, I mean, I can't even think of a case that I know of where, where the, the people or the people whose relatives died in the camps were given an explanation for their deaths. Um, so, 
so that is what we know about them. And they're sort of, um, you know, the aim was, yeah, basically to, to take Uyghurs who, who were sort of resistant to Chinese rule and, and basically kind of force them to, to assimilate. Yeah. And as I hear you explain that, it seems like if there is disobedience, if there is dissent within the camps, there are harsh consequences. And I wonder, you know, you just mentioned some of the details of what you know has, has happened in the camps. What do, what do you know about the the abuses, the torture, the, the really dark aspects of what can happen to people if they resist or if they're just in there in the first place? Yeah, you know, I mean, the you know, it's obviously difficult to, to corroborate any of these things because we can't be there. Um, but but a lot of people did sort of tell consistent stories, right? And um, after they came out, one thing that that people often talked about was being strapped into what's known as a tiger chair, which is a kind of metal chair with shackles for the legs and arms that kind of Im that immobilizes you for interrogation. And, um, you know, some several people reported being strapped into these chairs for, you know, hours, even days at a time and just and, you know, deprived of sleep and interrogated, you know, endlessly. Um, there were there were beatings, um, obviously, um, and, uh, you know, humiliations like like um, having your having your head shaved, uh, things that sort of, you know, you know, measures that that are intended to kind of erase your identity, your sense of self um, that, that are common with other, you know, other camps like this that, that we know about. Um, some people reported being forced to eat pork or being made to believe that they were eating pork, uh, which obviously if you're a Muslim is, 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 a, you know, a huge taboo. Um, and so it's just all kinds of, you know, just a, a huge variety of, of, of torture and, and sort of mistreatment. Um, that was, that was intended to kind of terrorize people into compliance. Do we know at this point, roughly speaking, what the percentage of the Uyghur population has been subjected to these camps in general? Is there a rough understanding of what that looks like? Yeah, the you know it's it's difficult. Obviously, the Chinese the Chinese government has never said um, they've only they've only denied estimates. They've never given an estimate of their own. I think on the most conservative end, you could say um, hundreds of thousands, many many hundreds of thousands out of out of a population of twelve million. Um, in some places we've got, we have leaked documents that show, um, as many as, as 20 to 30% of the, of, of the population of a Uyghur village would be taken to camps. Um, uh, there have been various, uh, UN experts and other experts who've, who've, who've attempted to, to calculate this uh, and estimate it. And I think, you know, some of them fall on the high end of estimates around one, you know, 1.3 to one and a half million. What is China's official position about this at this point? What, what have they conceded? What have they denied? What is their official statement about what is happening to the Uyghurs? So the, the, the communist party, initially they denied it was happening at all. Um, and then after a, a sort of series of, of foreign media reports came out, uh, they, they did admit to the existence of the camps they were they refer to them as re-education centers um vocational training centers and uh their official position i mean they deny of course um any accusations of genocide which some governments uh have have leveled including including the state department um you know they, they call that the lie of the century and instead what they say is that this is an innovation in counterterrorism, uh and and it's actually that they've you know they've actually 
you know, gone so far as to say other countries should should learn from from what they've been doing there. Yeah. You know, one of as I was reading your book, one of the components of, of the you know research that I wanted to go over with you was related to the details of the of the advancements in surveillance technology. And specifically, I know you spend time on the you know facial recognition capabilities, which it seems like have made you know massive progress from a technological perspective in the past few years. You know, to a lay audience that is not familiar with you know what is capable at this point. What do we know about this technology? What is it capable of when they're when it's set up in a city? What kind of data can be you know obtained by a government who has who has set up these face uh, facial um, recognition technology cameras? Right. So, so facial recognition technology. I mean, it, it it is exactly what it sounds like, right? It's um, you know, it's it's uh, cameras that have that are matched with algorithms that are basically they they do what they take what's called a face print, um, which is not so it's not exactly a photo of your face, but it's a, it measures every face, and, and you know each face has like a unique combination of of measurements like the distance between the eyes, for example, or between the bottom of the nose and the top of the lip, or, you know, the sort of, um, you know, nostril and the chin, that sort of thing. And they, they, so they take all these measurements and the combination of those measurements is generally unique, uh, to each person. And they have, you know, they'll, uh, you know, a, a police agency in China, for example, will have a database of people who they consider to be, um, uh, persons of interest, Right, which could yep. be, um, a, you know, an ex-con, a drug trafficker. Uh, they actually have seven categories, um, you know, that which also includes um, the mentally ill uh, and uh, you know, political dissidents, people who who they say threaten social stability. And so they'll they'll create a database of these people, their face prints, and then they they can set up cameras that will track a crowd in real time and check each face that it. That, you know, that passes by the camera against that database of people and and then send an alert to the police if they spot that person. Um, and then, you know, they'll have a, a set of cameras networked around an area so that they can trace the movements of, of that person if they are a person of interest. And the capabilities are getting they're good and getting better all the time. I mean, the way that algorithms work is that the more data you feed into them, the better and more accurate they get. And, and China's advantage is that is that it's willing to use these technologies in real life, in the wild, uh, is, is the way that, uh, you know, uh, is this is a sort of term of art. And and as a result, they're kind of collecting constant. They're constantly collecting new data to feed back into the algorithms to improve them. So you know, it used to be that that facial recognition was only really worked if you were like you had a perfectly lit face facing the camera head on, right? But now, you know, particularly in a place like Xinjiang where they have three D images of people's faces, they can you know they can identify you from a greater distance, even if there's shadows. You know, even if maybe even if you're wearing a mask. That sort of thing, and then the processing power on these is really uh, amazing. One sort of government procurement document that we found for a local police department um, in in central China, they were they were asking a company to build a system that I think it involved something like five thousand cameras, and that would um, be able to retrace someone's steps over the course of a year, right? So they would track someone over the course of a year 
or and and they had you know stored images over the course of a year of, of someone's movements, and they, they'd be able to like search that person and track them within five seconds or something something along those lines, right? So they have, so they, you know, so it's not just real time data, but it's also historical data, uh, and it's really um, you know it's quite it's 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 quite impressive. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a very basic question, which is, why does this matter? Um, well, it matters because these technologies have immense power to completely upend the way that human beings balance things like security and freedom, right, or convenience and privacy, because the benefits they offer um, in, in something like safety, for example, are, are immense, right? I mean, uh, you know, something like the facial recognition system I was just describing, you know, it can track a criminal, it can track a criminal down better than, than anything we've ever had before, right? Yeah. And, and that's a really attractive idea. If you're, you know, if you're the person, if you're the sort of person who's afraid of crime, that's really attractive. On the flip side, if you ever, if you ever end up on the, on the government's bad side, that technology is going to be turned against you. Right. And so I think and, and, and it's invasive in ways that we've just never as human beings ever experienced before. Right. Like it essentially erases anonymity in public. Potentially, you know, and China is, is mapping out a way for governments to use these technologies to combine these with state power that is immensely alluring around the world. Like these China, Chinese companies are selling these technologies to dozens of countries. I think, I think it's more than 80 countries as of 2020, at least. 80 and uh including some democracies right so these so these technologies out there are spreading and it really is has totally upended the the, the calculations that we the, the, the we normally make about you know the sacrifices we're willing to to put forth for security and convenience um so yeah 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 one of my all-time favorite movies is the is the movie The Lives of Others, which I I would bet you probably have heard of or are familiar with. Yeah. It's it, I believe it's set literally in the year 1984, and it's a fictional story of uh, life in East Germany. For I think he was a playwright, and it was one of the best film representations to me of the power of surveillance and information, and what a government can do to individuals when they essentially know everything about you. You know, I remember when the Edward Snowden revelations were uh, coming out and there were documentaries being made about it and the American people got uh, the ability to really learn the specifics about the, the, the reach and the, the detail of how much data the government was collecting on its own citizens, contrary to what they had been saying publicly. And I remember being at dinner parties and these conversations was come, would come up and a consistent, um, you know, response that I would hear was, I have nothing to hide. It doesn't matter to me. I'm, I'm fine with this. Right. And yeah. I would love to put that comment to you and to have you respond to how you would respond to somebody with a response like that. Yeah, you know that it's 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 uh, funny you bring that up because when when uh, Lisa and I first started working on this book, one of the things we did obviously was go out and talk to a bunch of Chinese people and say, "What do you think of all this?" Uh, and one of the responses we consistently got was exactly that, 
right? Yeah. Um, yeah. If you don't have anything, if you haven't done anything wrong, what do you have to worry about? Um, you're just making a, you're just making China look bad, you know, like you, you want to make China look Orwellian, but like, you know, if you're a regular law abiding citizen, it's fine. And we, you know, we, I think we, we sort of came to think of that as a Chinese response, mm. you know, because we, and, 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 you know, cause that's, those are the people we were interviewing and we're like, okay, you know, maybe Chinese people don't care about privacy that much. And so that's just a Chinese thing. Uh, but then I went to the U S to start doing reporting in the U S for the book. Um, and, uh, the most vivid example of this is I was in an airport in in, in JFK, an airport line, security line, and uh, there was a couple up in front of me, and the woman was commenting on some Western media report she'd read on her phone about state surveillance in China, and their husband turned around and said exactly that. And he's like, you know, well, I don't see it. It's no big deal. If you haven't done anything wrong, it's fine. So, And that's when I realized, yeah, that's, that is a universal response to this sort of thing. And, and I think it's natural, right? You know, I think people don't want to think about this sort of thing, right? I mean, yeah. as a, you know, as a journalist in China, I was, I sort of was forced to live with a constant paranoia about being watched even before I started looking into this topic, just because I think you, you would be naive not to, uh, to assume that you're being tracked. And, and it was exhausting, you know, it was just this kind of constant weight on your shoulders of, of having to think about ways you might be being tracked or conversations you're having that might be being, uh, you know, listened in on. And so no, no one wants to think about that. Right. And, uh, you know, until the, until it turns on them and, you know, in, in the China context, you know, one of the cities that we visited, um, when we were doing this, the work for this book is a place called Hangzhou, which is this, you know, really beautiful, uh, wealthy city, kind of two hours outside of Shanghai. That's a it's a tech hub. It's home to Alibaba, mm. um, which is you know the big Chinese e-commerce company, and it's just loaded with state surveillance. I mean, the whole the entire government there is digitized, and and the and the local government works with Alibaba and a bunch of other companies to you know, and they've they've essentially got the the, the flip side of, of, of Xinjiang and that they have this really kind of almost digital utopia or they're aiming for a kind of digital utopian sort of scenario there. But, you know, it's a place where most people have a really generally benign view of, of these technologies. Um, but it's also a place where there's a lot of construction going on. And, and one of the common things that happens in China is the government will uh, essentially claim em eminent domain and, and just knock down your apartment right in order to build a new you know high-speed rail line or whatever that's just how and that's how chinese infrastructure gets built right they don't have to worry about it um and they often what often happens is they don't pay market rate for your apartment so and this will happen to middle class people right people who like one day they're living the hangzhou dream and and everything's great and the next day their house is knocked down and suddenly they're like protesting the government and they're like going to beijing to petition for justice and then the surveillance system is trained on them then they're on a watch list uh and then suddenly they 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 kind of see the the darker side of it yeah i thought when i was getting those response you know years ago when the snowden situation came out and, and his revelations were made public that what was really lacking for me in the responses in that response if i have nothing to hide was a lack of imagination right a lack yeah. of imagination of how the future could unfold and that while it probably in the next month year was 
almost certainly not going to be a hindrance to your own life and your own freedom, you don't know where the future is heading. And I would imagine you have thought a, a good deal about this. And you just gave an example in you know the, the utopian version of China. But how else do you, you know, as an exercise in imagination, what are some other circumstances that Chinese people and American people might want to keep in mind in terms of how this can really turn on you very quickly? Obviously, in the U.S., we're lucky in the sense that this kind of wholesale surveillance with this detail has not been implemented at this point. But what could potentially the future look like that would be you know, truly totalitarian in your, in your estimation? What, what could unfold that could lead to this technology essentially eliminating human freedom altogether? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's we definitely have thought about this, and one of the one of the sort of creepier and more amazing experiences I had reporting this was just reading through uh, research that had been done by Communist Party scholars. That there's a there's an uh, what's known as the Central Party School uh, in Beijing, which is the kind of the elite training ground for for top Communist Party officials, and and it and and the scholars there are sort of considered the the cream of the crop of 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 Communist Party thinkers and a bunch of them have written uh, these papers kind of imagining the future of the surveillance state. Right. And, and, you know, they have, and they, you know, some of them are a little pie in the sky. They're like, you know, someday everything in the world will be digitized and we'll be able, you know, we'll have, we'll, we'll be able to sort of apply algorithms and data analysis to everything that exists. And, you know, may, that may or may not be the case, but, you know, some of the applications they're imagining are, um, pretty wild. I mean, you know, in one instance, for example, they said, well, we can, you know, we can apply this to students, right? So that we can have, um, you know, we can, we can suck in all the social media activity, the, um, you know, the location data, everything we know about a student to predict which students are likely to kind of uh, lose their way ideo ideologically, right? Mm -hmm. who, are, who are likely to sort of become enamored of the West or of some other system besides China's and we can intervene early, right. To make sure that they stay on the path um, and things like that. So, I mean, really kind of thought, thought police level stuff and, you know, whether they can pull that off, who knows, but it's certainly, it's part of their ambition. Um, I mean, as you, as you said, in, in the U S it's, there are safeguards. Um, obviously there's, you know, we have the free press, we have courts, rule of law, um, that sort of thing. And, and those are all, good, but there are, you know, even already there are futures in, in the U S near futures that, 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 that some people will find disturbing. And one of those is, um, now with the overturning of Roe versus Wade and the, you know, the return of abortion bans, uh, there are police departments, you know, theoretically, um, you know, police departments in states with abortion bans can get a warrant, uh, from a local judge and go to Google and uh, um, with with what's known as a ring fence warrant, right, which allows them to say say to Google, give us the data of everyone who was within this area, say an abortion clinic at a given time, right? Or they can also do keyword search warrants, which, which function the same way. You know, tell us everyone who was everyone in you know this given city that was searching for abortion drugs. Uh, at a certain time, right? And they'll just get a list of people who might have been secretly trying to get an abortion. 
Um, you know, so that's something that's, I mean, that's not even a distant future. That's a, that's a, that's a maybe even already happening, but, but certainly a, a likely scenario in the future for, for American women. Yeah. I know you spend a lot of the, a lot of time in the book detailing and profiling, giving some context and background on the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping. And again, I'm going to throw a very basic question to you about him, but when somebody asks you about who he is, how do you give an answer to that? Who is this man? Xi Jinping is, I mean, he is the, the most powerful uh, Communist Party leader since Mao. Uh, I think you can make that argument now. He is a true believer in the party. He was, he was, his, he's the son of a, of a, of a revolutionary hero, uh, Xi Jongshun, considered one of the sort of key founders of the party. Uh, he was came of age during the, the Cultural Revolution. His father was actually um, uh, uh, purged briefly during the Cultural Revolution. So he actually had a kind of a rough time. He was sent to the countryside and 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 had to, to spend some of his formative years, um, you know, digging ditches in a in a really impoverished part of China. He never really traveled much outside of China. Um, so, uh, but he believes in the communist party and he believes that the party is, uh, inextricably linked with China's future as the only organization that can make China great again. And, um, and, uh, and is a, he's a pretty ruthless political operator. He's very, um, you know, people, people in China sort of, um, they used to make fun of his education. They used to, you know, kind of deride him as a country bumpkin because because he you know wasn't he didn't really get a great education um but he is undoubtedly a, a sort of master political tactician and he's sort of rearranged the the architecture of power in china in such a way that he's sort of unassailable now yeah. and um and he's and, and now he's using that power to kind of re reorganize how the communist party controls controls the the country you alluded to this earlier that, you know, this technology that we've talked about during this conversation, you know, it, it's details what it's capable of is not staying local to China, that it is being exported. Um, what do we know about that situation? Where, where is this technology going? What are the other stories in the world in your mind that uh, are worth sharing publicly about where the future might be heading, where this technology is is going, and what that could mean for the citizens of other nations on Earth. Right, right. So yeah, like I said, it, the it's hard to find really reliable data on this. If you if you look at um, um, mm -hmm. if you look at statements by the the tech companies themselves, companies like Huawei, yeah, uh, which which a lot of people will recognize as a major uh, Chinese telecom equipment maker, you know, they claim to have sold. Um, state surveillance systems, which they market as safe city systems, uh, you know, to hundreds of cities um, and 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 uh, federal governments around the world. Um, you know, the, the number we feel comfortable with is is somewhere in the eighty range. Um, that at least as of twenty twenty, it's probably gone up a little bit since then. But it's all kinds of governments. It's it's you know your sort of usual suspect autocracies, but also some democracies and. You know, I think the the most important or most interesting subset of those are the countries that are kind of teetering on the border between democracy and authoritarianism. Uh, one example that 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 we dug into um, was Uganda, 
Right. Right. Which is a, um, you know, it's, it's one of the, the wealthier sort of, um, more advanced sub-Saharan African countries. It's a, it's a major recipient of, of U.S. aid. Uh, but the leader there, Yori Museveni is a, he's a strong man. He's been in power for decades. And, um, and a few years ago, he was, he, he started to, he was facing a, a sort of new opposition challenger, this young, uh, singer, former singer named Bobby Wine, who's uh, who we met, and who's just an incredibly charming, car- you know, charismatic guy. He's from the ghetto. He sort of speaks, you know, the ghetto ghetto language. Literally, he's actually kind of, um, you know, his songs actually have, have, have sort of coined a lot of uh, a lot of the the lingo in in, in Kampala. But he's, you know, he was challenging with seventy. Um, quite strongly, especially among younger people, and uh, and so Museveni went to the the Chinese ambassador uh, and um, or had had his security chief reach out to the Chinese ambassador and a few other people, sort of looking for solutions, and and the Chinese ambassador brought in Huawei, uh, which had been which had helped build Uganda's telecom network, and together they flew a bunch of Ugandan police officials out to, to China, to Huawei's headquarters, and then to the Ministry of Public Security in, in, in Beijing and, and sort of gave them the whole dog and pony show um, and demonstrated how, how they use these systems to control uh, things in China. And uh, so, shortly after that, Museveni signed the deal, bought a sort of state surveillance starter kit from Huawei for $127 million. And in the, la- the last elections, he, he used it quite effectively to, um, to, to corral opposition supporters and, and to get them off the streets. Um, and, and ultimately, um, won, won the election. Uh, and, it was, and it was actually an election that some people thought he might, he might lose. So, um, so it is having an effect, you know, it's having, it's, you know, it's, it, it's not exactly like countries are replicating China's model perfectly, um, because mm-hmm. that's actually not really, in some ways, it's not really possible, right? Like China is a, it's a massive country with huge amounts of resources, huge amounts of data, um, you know, top flight technology and a, and a, and a really vast and sort of a fairly competent bureaucracy, right? And so they have a system that is perfectly set up to run uh, a modern state surveillance system places like uganda don't have all of that but they can still use these these technologies in in ways that that sort of serve to keep you know people like Museveni in power so that's so you know that is coming and that's you know china is still actively selling these systems around the globe um and and sort of promoting this notion that these technologies that it is legitimate to use these technologies as a means to maintaining political power yeah. I know in the book, and this is something that I learned and didn't, I, I hadn't known before, um, that the Tiananmen Square uh, moment in 1989 was preceded by, I believe it was the death of a popular professor or intellectual who had advocated for reform. And I think among those was freedom of the press. Um, and, you know, if I am an average, quote unquote, Chinese citizen living in Beijing, Shanghai, perhaps I'm Han Chinese and currently have this view that, you know, what does it matter? I have nothing to hide. You know, do you, do you view this, what's happening with the Uyghurs as potentially a prototype that, you know, the, 
the lessons, the learnings, the data, the best practices for lack of a better phrase are being obtained on a relatively small portion of the Chinese population. And that if there is in the future, a wave of enthusiasm for democratic reforms, for additional freedom, the government essentially has a playbook at hand already or are learning a playbook right now that can effectively be implemented and squash dissent and enforce obedience. You know, I, I'm guessing this is something that you have forecasted and thought about yourself, but I'd love to get any comments you might have about, about that specifically. Right. Yeah. Actually the, the person who died uh, just before uh, whose death sort of set off the, the Tiananmen square demonstrations was a, he was actually a, a reformist leader, not a, not just mm. a, a politician, a guy named Hu Yao Bang. Um, mm. But he did, he did advocate, sort of more liberal reforms and and um and that's always been something that since Tiananmen Square the Communist Party has been deathly afraid of, right? They they sort of felt like they escaped with their life barely in that moment and and they've been ever since they've been looking for ways to make sure that it never happens again. And uh and I think you're right. In in Xinjiang they do have a template for um for sniffing out people who might have the, those sorts of tendencies, right? And then, and then neutralizing them. Uh, and they have, you know, they have techniques, they have technology, they have systems. Um, and they, and they actually are actively doing that already, right? They, they have lists of dissidents. They know, I mean, they know the, the people who, who sort of have these leanings. Um, they have lists of those people, uh, and they're adding to those lists all the time. And those people are subjected to, to similar levels of surveillance that you see in Xinjiang. But what, what I think is really interesting about um, and, and, and disturbing about the Xinjiang example or Xinjiang as a laboratory is that you've, you actually now have seen the Communist Party take lessons from Xinjiang and apply them nationwide with the coronavirus pandemic. Mm. Um, and that was, you know, one of my most vivid experience, personal experiences in all of this was, you know, in, in early 2020, waking up one morning when, you know, as news was spreading that 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 uh, that the coronavirus had escaped Wuhan, coming down and seeing my residential compound basically locked locked down and blocked off with all so that only one entrance was left open and everyone had to pass through it and, and be sort of interrogated about why they were going out and when they would be back and that sort of thing, and that is a you know. It was striking because that's exactly how Uyghur residential compounds were being managed in Xinjiang. Um, and then, you know, shortly after that, you had uh, the government roll out the system of of health codes, which is a sort of smartphone based system that tracks everyone's movements uh, over the past two weeks using sort of data from telecom operators and, and other forms of data, uh, just to measure their exposure to, to COVID hotspots or to COVID patients. Right. And it, and it would assign a rating to everyone based on that exposure. Right. So, you know, and it was color coded. So it was, you know, if you, if you had gone through a hotspot or been having dinner with a COVID patient, your code would turn red. Um, if, if not, if you were clear, then your code would be green. I think there was also a yellow code, although I've never really heard of anyone getting yellow or, but, yeah. but essentially if you were red, you know, uh, if your code came up red, you, you were very liable to be either locked down in your 
own apartment are more likely taken off to a to a quarantine center, right? So the parallels with Xinjiang were were really um, really clear. Hmm. Yeah, and I know you know this is this is also a part of your story that I think you alluded to earlier that you know I, I just have to get on record, but you, you know you personally, as I understand it, have you know unique a unique experience of having the the muscle of the Chinese government be imposed upon you. You know, my understanding is that you are not welcome in that country anymore. And I would love to get the story from you as to what exactly happened and what you think about it now. Right. Right. So, um, so this also happened, uh, uh, right around the time of the pandemic, actually not too long after I, uh, came down that morning in, in my residential compound to, to find it all locked up. Um, and the background to this is, um, uh, there'd been sort of increasing tension between China and the U.S., uh, you know, throughout the Trump administration, uh, and China was sort of, um, uh, generally, uh, you know, very displeased with, with, with things that the Trump administration was saying. At the same time, uh, the opinion page of the Wall Street Journal, which is, run completely separately from the news side of the of the journal uh, and separated by a you know 100 foot tall flaming firewall that no one crosses um the opinion page of the wall street journal ran a headline uh describing china as the sick man of asia uh, amidst the pandemic and a lot of people found it offensive and the and the foreign you know the foreign ministry of china sort of seized on it um, mm. and, uh, and made it quite a big deal of it in the local media. Um, the Wall Street Journal is blocked in China, so most people in China wouldn't have read that headline otherwise, but because of the foreign ministry, a lot of them saw it, um, and, it, and it became kind of a, a thing. Um, and, uh, and at one point, um, our, my bureau chief was called in to the foreign ministry, uh, and it was actually his his visa was up for renewal, and so he thought the meeting was about his visa getting renewed. He asked me to come along. He was new. He was new to the country, so he wanted me to go with him. We went there. They wouldn't let me into the meeting. They made me wait outside, uh, and then he came out a few minutes later, and his face was kind of white. And I was like, "Oh my god, what happened? Did they kick you out?" And he's like, "No, they kicked you out." Uh, and it was so it was me and two other reporters. Uh, and it was totally shocking. Um, mm. You know, China had not outright expelled multiple reporters from a, from the same news organization that way since uh, in the in the post Mao era, right? So it was totally unprecedented. Um, we thought we would have time to kind of appeal it, but a half an hour later they announced it publicly, and so that was that. Uh, they gave us five days to to pack up our stuff and get out. Um, one of my colleagues actually who was who was expelled was in Wuhan at the time. Mm. And so she wasn't she wasn't able to leave because the city was locked down, but they they uh, revoked her press card so she couldn't do any reporting. Uh, so me and my other colleague um, you know got on a plane to to Japan, which was the only country that had open borders in Asia at the time, and kind of hung out there for a little while. but um, but we never heard why why they chose us uh, and so we, and we still don't know. Um, uh, so it, it's all speculation. I mean, I do know that they, they weren't happy with, with some of my reporting in Xinjiang in particular, they had complained about it in the past, uh, whether that 
was a factor in, in my being selected. Uh, I don't know. Um, but what happened subsequently was that the, the U.S. government then responded by kicking out a bunch of uh, or revoking the visas, at least, of a bunch of Chinese journalists. Um, then China retaliated again by kicking out all of the Americans who worked for the, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. So... Um, so we're now we're now in a situation where we're so, we're sort of the U.S. government and the and the Chinese government are negotiating on on letting new reporters back in, but all of us, including myself, anyone who was who was expelled, is is officially not allowed back in the country. At yeah. least as of now. Yeah. You know, I I know that um, over the past couple of years, and I think this is a fairly commonly held view, but. Uh, Warren Buffett's right-hand man, Charlie Munger, I know, has commented on you know, some of the f- freedom restrictions of China in the last 30-ish years or so, and on balance has the general view that for the gains made in terms of economic prosperity and standard of living, on balance, that it was a net positive of lifting people out of poverty, of um, in, in- increasing the welfare of the Chinese population in general. And I have to imagine this is something too that you have considered. It's a, it's a population that I believe is something like four to five times that of the United States, a country that has no historic DNA in liberal democracy or um, individual freedom. I think I heard you mention this in a, a podcast interview that I was listening to in preparation for this conversation, that the word privacy itself was not in I, I guess Mandarin or in the Chinese um, yeah, vocabulary until the 1990s. Given how different the cultures are, and I think um, it's interesting. Last week, I was interviewing Joe Henrik, who's a um, kind of biological anthropologist and teaches at Harvard, and he was mentioning part of uh, his research is about just how differently the psychology tends to be between Westerners and non-Westerners in a whole variety of different areas. And you mentioned this too, that, you know, you're half Chinese as well. And I would imagine, you know, your family's story, I would bet, and perhaps I'm wrong about this, is the story of so many Chinese people who have come to the U.S. for for the freedoms that are not available in the Chinese mainland. And, yeah, that was a long statement there, but I think in general, right, I mean, I read your book and I hear about uh, what's happening in this massive country and learn about what's happening to the Uyghurs and learn about what is happening with the technology that they're you know, advancing and utilizing. And it's such a violation of my own sense of what it means to be a human being, um, a free person, somebody who you know, has you know, autonomy. How do you think about that? You know, given what China is, what it has been historically. Um, and in no way, I, I think it would be difficult to persuade me that there isn't something grossly wrong going on over there. Um, I just wanted to put that to you to get any feedback you might, might have or thoughts you might have about um, you know, the, the gains, right, to, to give the devil his due, you know, what the Chinese Communist Party has been able to accomplish in getting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in the last 30 years, how you think about that, you know, how, how you're able to, to balance 
um, the successes of that regime with the uh, what I think are objective abuses of people that are still happening there. How do you think about that 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 tension? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I don't I don't have like a, a, a really uh, great one line answer to this. I mean, it's it's definitely something I've struggled with uh, basically my entire career covering China, which I've been doing for for more than fifteen years. Um, you know, I, as a journalist, you know, as, as, and particularly with this book, you know, I, I, I try to be kind of conscious of all of this, right? I mean, I, I, you know, one of my most profound experiences going to China when I was younger was, was figuring out just how American I am. You yeah. know, like when I was younger, I was like, you know, I always tried to, I kind of identified with the Chinese half of my, my family, right? I, I would call myself Chinese and, 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 you know, I sort of idolized my, my Chinese grandfather and, and I just imagined myself as being sort of like almost, you know, fully Chinese. And, and then, you know, it only took me a few months of living in China to realize, no, that's not at all the case. <laughs> um, I'm definitely an American and my values are American and, uh, and, and it's not even really close. And so, you know, and, and, you know, journalism about China is always generally really fraught for this reason, right? There's a big argument about, you know, what is your role as a, as a foreign correspondent? Are you, are you there to sort of just describe what's happening? Is it you're writing sort of postcards home just to, just to like say, here's what's going on? Or are you covering China the way you would cover the U.S., you know, using, holding China to, to the same standards you would hold the, the U.S. government? Right. And I think, you know, the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. I think, in Ch you know, in China's case, because it's such an important country, right, because it is the world's second largest economy, because um, so many companies, so many American companies have business there. So many people from all over the world travel back and forth to it. And, you know, it's I think we can cover it more critically, we can approach it more critically for that reason, right? It is a major part of how the world works. It has huge, it has huge amounts of influence on how the world works. And for that reason, we all actually have a real stake in the decisions that the Communist Party makes. So for example, something like Xinjiang, you know, that sets a really, really dark precedent. You know, it, it, it's it, you know it's combining, you know, twenty first century technology with one of the most reviled institutions of the twentieth century, right? Mass incarceration of a religious minority—something that no one ever thought, or most people probably at least hoped would never come back, right? And so that's something you know, just by virtue of doing that, you know, I think you know the Communist Party sets a, a, a sort of new you know, it, it sort of paves a path for other countries to follow. And I think, you know, as, as citizens of the world, as cheesy as that sounds, I think, you know, it's fair to be extremely critical of that and very concerned about it. Um, you know, in, in terms of, you know, trying to evaluate whether the Communist Party has been good for China or not, I mean, that's a really complicated question. And it is true that they, that under the Communist Party, at least in the last, you know, in the post-Mao era, um, China has done well. I mean, it's had historic economic growth. Like no country ever in history has grown as quickly and, has and, and, and experienced rising standards of living as quickly as China has. There's like no disputing that. And most Chinese people, I think, are, are happy with that. 
right? I mean, they, you know, most Chinese people do support the Communist Party. Um, and, you know, uh, but it's, of course, you know, it's, it's because there's no free press there, because it's so hard to sort of have candid conversations with Chinese people, especially now that they've, they've kicked a bunch of us out as reporters. You know, it's hard to sort of really get a sense of how, how much people support the Communist Party, but they do. I mean, there is a baseline of support there. Um, so, I mean, that's a totally, I'm sure, unsatisfying and meandering answer. Uh, but it's, um, you know, I, 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 you know, it's a, it's a country of 1.4 billion people and it's, it's incredibly complex. Um, and you know, uh, in the end you can sort of find examples to, to, to back up any narrative you kind of want to spin out of China. Um, but I think the honest one is that it's really complicated and, and, um, you know, uh, uh, but it's also, it's one that we, you know, that we do have a stake in. I know we're getting somewhat close to the end of the conversation. There are just a couple more topics that I, I know I wanted to get your your feedback on and your thoughts on. And and one, and I know this, I don't know if this is directly addressed in the book itself, but one is about you know the, the primary uh, social media platform that young Americans are using right now. And undoubtedly, I will be utilizing to try to promote and share the information from this conversation, which is TikTok. You know, TikTok is a is a Chinese company, and um, I don't know how much reporting you have done on this. It's very possible that the information that I will do my best to blast onto that platform might get censored. Um, but it is extraordinarily popular with Americans. What advice would you have for young Americans who are putting so much of their own identity, lives, information? on this platform, you know, what do we know about the potential risks of TikTok itself and, and how it might be utilizing the data it is getting every day? Um, what do you say to that? What, what is worth knowing about what we know about that, that company? Right. So I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll stay off the top here that I haven't done a lot of really in-depth reporting on, on, TikTok and on ByteDance, it's the the company, the Chinese company that owns TikTok. Um, several of my colleagues have um, have certainly paid a lot of attention to it. I think the the thing to realize about TikTok is that it is it is owned by a Chinese company, ByteDance. Uh, that company's founder actually is is a really fascinating character, and I think you know by all accounts he sort of sees himself in the mold of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. Those, those yeah. are the people he, he worships, you know, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, and that sort of thing. I mean, he's not a, um, he's not a, a, a communist party apparatchik, right? But in some ways it doesn't really matter uh, because it is a Chinese company. And as a Chinese company, uh, it has, uh, it is, its future is tied to the communist party. Uh, and, um, you know, every company in China, including foreign companies, actually has a Communist Party cell, uh, and that uh, and that party cell has immense influence over operations, um, or it can exert immense influence over operations when it when the party feels it needs to. Um, so, you know, we don't have evidence of TikTok sharing American user data with China, and they claim that they don't. Um, uh, and that may very that that may be the case, uh, but if the Communist Party 
really wants that data. It's hard to imagine a way in which ByteDance uh, and TikTok can can refuse them. Yeah. Um, what China would do with that data, I don't know. But you know, one you know one of the examples that that uh, I remember from back in the day, but it's probably a little bit clearer, uh, was um, was with Grinder. Yeah. Um, the 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 dating app in which a Chinese company was trying to, to buy a controlling stake in it. And the and people in the state state department were really concerned because there were a lot of government employees on that app um, and military other, other folks. Um, and there was concern that, that the Chinese government could use that data to blackmail, um, you know, members of, of, you know, you know, sort of key government employees who maybe weren't out um, who were secretly on the app. So, so there is concern um, you know, we just don't know what the government could do with that data, but they, they theoretically can access it. Yeah. Last question I want to ask you, and before I do that, I just want to thank you again for taking the time to, to have this conversation. I know how busy you are. And, um, you know, for me as a, as a you know, generally cheerleading American, I think this is one of the, the beautiful things about our country is our ability to have these kind of candid conversations that you mentioned are can be extremely difficult to, to have in China and get the information that you have you have obtained um, from your reporting. And I want to I want to end the conversation by asking you about the future in general. And you know, to me, one of the primary takeaways thus far from the year 2022 in its chaos is a clarity, um, at least to my mind, about the West and the elements of the West that actually matter. Um, it can become cliche that, you know, we live in the, in the free world, but I think when you learn about some of the details of, um, what is happening in China, what is going on with Russia, we certainly have our own problems here. Um, but it, it is a reminder, I think to me, just as a citizen in this country, that we, there is a preciousness to what we have inherited in this country that. I think to I think is objectively a a net good and a positive for humanity and something that is the exception of the rule in history. Um, and I, I'd like to close just by asking you about how you think about the future and you know both the future about this country and the future of China and how you see this you know likely um, unfolding over the next you know five to ten years or even a generation. Um, I guess specifically to whether this is sustainable within China and um, how you think about, you know, obviously no one knows for sure, but um, the, the spidey sense, the intuition, the you know, just general judgment probability call that you think about what might be coming or, or uh, what may be going on in China, it's potential thriving or collapse. How do you think about that? How do you think about how surveillance will affect the history of that country and our own country in general? Yeah, um, I think, you know, I think China, China's path, um, you know, I mean, you never say never with, with China, but I think its path is more or less set, at least in the near future, the near to medium term. Um, you know, Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, is uh, next month is likely to get a, a third term as president, which will probably lead to then lifetime tenure. Um, yeah. 
and uh, and he's sort of cleared out a lot of the the, the barriers to his agenda. Um, I mean, certainly he's he's done things, including uh, including insisting on on zero COVID um, even to this day that you know that have that have angered people. But he's he's just so in control of the levers of power in China. It's it's hard to see him being um, his grip being uh, broken. Uh, and so I think you'll you'll just see the, the surveillance state in China sort of continue to grow and get more sophisticated um, now that that they've had this response to COVID and they, they sort of have this infrastructure in place to track everyone in the country. Um, it, you know, the, the sort of one of the biggest barriers they had to 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 really fully realizing the surveillance state is sort of crumbled now. Right. So they have. Yeah. So I think you're just going to see that get more and more sophisticated. Um, I think you're going to continue to see uh, Chinese tech companies exporting surveillance elsewhere, uh, and that's partly just by economic necessity. There's, you know, two of the world's largest surveillance camera security camera makers in the um, are, are actually the two largest are based in China, Hikvision and Dahua. Um, and China's a big market; they can sell domestically, but China already has more than 400 million or so surveillance cameras, they don't actually need that many more. Uh, and so those companies are, are, you know, just as a matter of, of, of bottom line are looking for other markets. And uh, so those systems are going to continue spreading around the world. And I think, you know, for Americans, for people in the West, the, the thing that's scary about this is that China, you know, alluded to this a little bit earlier, but China offers a really simple vision of the future. Right. And that is sort of authoritarian government matched with cutting edge technology. And, 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 you know, they have a positive vision of this, right? Their idea is that you can sort of take, you know, sort of like, you know, a government version of Google, right? You can, you can harvest enough data and apply the right algorithms to it. And you can essentially engineer a perfect society, right? You can basically engineer a society that is safe and predictable and convenient and that, and that will not have dissidents because no one will, can possibly complain about it, right? Um, that's that's the sort of ultimate vision uh, that they're selling, and it's one that you know very few other countries could even dream of implementing. But a lot of them, I think, will buy it, right? Because it's simple, and because we're you know everything else in this in this era with climate change, with um, COVID, with Russia and the, the war in Ukraine, everything seems so unstable and chaotic. I think the appeal of, of simple answers is even greater now than it than it has been in the past. So you know the. Democracies, I think you're right. We do, you know, we do have something precious, right? And 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 you know what we've inherited is rare and valuable. I think the challenge is to realize that that those institutions, those safeguards, are that they require, you know, care and feeding, right? They require maintenance and 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 and, and attention, and they will they will sort of keep you know, uh, a surveillance state from arising and they are capable of keeping a, a sort of Chinese style surveillance state from arising in the United States, but only if they're applied, right? Only if they're used, you know, you know, so we have a free press and you need a free press to do, you need, a, you need media to expose abuses of these technologies. Um, you need courts to uphold rules and laws against their abuses. Um, you need politicians to sort of pass those rules and, and, and legislate them and regulate but but that has to happen, right? That has to be an active effort and an active conversation. Uh, it's not, you know. Otherwise, you know, we'll sort of get what we what we got 
with social media, right? Where we kind of, we were sitting around and we we're like, oh, this is kind of cool. And, but no one was really thinking about the consequences down the line. Um, and now our, our politics have been sort of radically altered as a result. So, so yeah, I think, I think we have a fight on our hands is, is, is basically the, the final conclusion for me. Yeah. And in that fight, we have the maintenance of, of your book and the information of your book. And uh, Josh, I just want to say again, I really appreciate you doing this. And I think I speak for a lot of people in expressing gratitude for your years of hard work and reporting and willingness to commit yourself to sharing this information. Um, it was a pleasure to meet you, man. Yeah, it was, my, it was my pleasure too, Dan. I really enjoyed this. Likewise. Good luck. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. Thank you.